Today on The Field Trip, we speak with Kai Schindelmeyer and Steve Irwin from Colonel Property, with our third in a series of podcasts focusing on potential future impacts of the pandemic on commercial real estate. Episode 10, let's go. Colonel Property is one of Australia's leading tenant advisory firms with a strong track record in working for professional services firms, particularly law firms. We speak with two of its directors, Kai Schindelmeyer and Steve Irwin, to discuss their perspective on the impact of the pandemic now and how things might change in the future. From the unfortunate lack of collaboration in current negotiations to the concept of a fragmented office to office pop-ups in suburban retail spaces, to the future of face rents, we cover a lot of ground. I'm Alistair Fitzgerald, CEO of Field and your host for this podcast. This was a fun and information-rich discussion, which I hope you enjoy. Today on the field trip, uh, I've got Kai Schindelmeyer and Steve Irwin from Colonel Property. Kai, Steve, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Morning, Alistair. Uh, so, um, Colonel Property, uh, one of the leading tenant advisory um, firms in the market with a focus on, um, on, or certainly a speciality in legal services and, and also uh, general professional services generally. Um, you guys have been a bit, uh, have been out there in in the market talking about the impact of the pandemic on the real estate market. Um, Steve, you've done a series of three webinars so far, available on your website. I know ColonelProperty.com.au. Um, Kai, you, uh, with your fellow director, Holly Bailey, did a podcast with Lawyers Weekly um, yep. a month or so ago as well. If And then I think, Steve, tomorrow you've got um, another webinar. Tomorrow being tomorrow after we record this, so that'll be uh, Thursday the 30th of July. This podcast will come out after that, uh, focusing on lease terms and the impact of the pandemic on those. Just wanted to get um, all of those out. We'll have details of it. Um, of all those in the show notes for people that really want to leave this podcast and go and listen to those other things. They certainly give some great background and lay the foundation for the discussion today. What I did want to get to after briefly perhaps checking in um, on a couple of the comments, Steve, that you had made about um, the impact of the pandemic on the market, I then want to step through a few future trends, um, trends that each of you have mentioned in... um, in your general discussions to date, um, and also a few ideas of my own to see, again, what is the impact of the pandemic on commercial real estate looking forward. Um, so, at a lengthy introduction, um, I hope I've, I've covered everything there. Perhaps, Steve, if I can start with you. Um, in your series of three webinars, end of March, beginning of April, um, you made a, a couple of comments that really stuck with me. One of your themes was that a collaborative approach between landlords and tenants was um, was the way forward, was the way to manage this. A few months post, what have you seen? Has that come to fruition? Um, oh, look, I, I think um, perhaps both parties might have been disappointed with the outcome. Um, certainly from a tenant's perspective, when we started the the open dialogue about what what was going to happen to the market, who was going to bear um, the responsibility for for premises uh, being little or or not occupied at all. 
Um, there was a lot of talk about collaborative approach. The, uh, certainly the Prime Minister encouraged that. Um, everyone then held off until there was the, uh, the promised um, mandatory set of, of guidelines. Um, I think the Prime Minister was quite right in, in thinking through for a little while and then, and then bringing these in. And, they, and they, they had to, I suspect under the Constitution, um, they had to then allow each of the states to, to properly mandate the, um, the terms of the code of conduct that the, um, that the national government um, gave the guidelines for. Um, and, and, and by and large, that was, all, uh, that was all put in place. So there was really a series of rules um, that applied to, um, well, both, both retail and commercial office tenancies. Um, but it was, it was a very black and white. If you, if you are eligible under this code um, due to these criteria, these are the, the minimum concessions that, that we feel a landlord should give. Um, and, and how it's translated um, is that essentially, if you're eligible under the code, landlords are saying, well, that's what you'll get. That's the formula, that's what you get. Mm -hmm. If you're not eligible under the code, there is extremely limited dialogue and, and, and really what, the, what landlords have said is if you're eligible under the code, here's the guidelines, These, this is the concession that you'll get because that's what we've got to give you. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, if you're not eligible under the code, we've all got to suck it up and, and you know, we, we landlords are having to give concessions to those eligible under the code. We're having to give significant concessions to retailers because they're simply not trading. Yep. Um, but but you, Mr. Tenant A, B, C, X, Y, Z, um, you're, you're either big enough and ugly enough um, that you don't have a 30% drop in turnover or you have a bigger turnover than 50 million per annum or you're in a category like um, like floors of uh, chambers of barristers, where because of their structure, then they're not really an operating entity. The lessee is essentially a little service company that's that the barristers chip into. So it's not it, it's not the same, and landlords are not giving those concessions. So. The, where, where landlords believe that they are offering um, concessions slash dialogue to parties, to tenants that don't, uh, are not eligible under the code, they say, you've got to give us something for us to give you something. Right. So in other words, if your lease expiry is at the end of 2023 and you're prepared to sign up for another two years, we will give you um, an incentive of pick a number, let's say 20%. And you can take half of that incentive now to, to um, defray some of your rental obligations in the COVID period. Right. So, so, so do, you, do you look at those kinds of things? Are they, is there an element of sharing in that? Or do you really think this is just 
an illustration of it's everyone for themselves. And if it's there are restrictions imposed upon parties and they'll be abided by, but otherwise it's whatever you can get away with. Um, yeah, pretty much the latter. Yep. Um, I, don't, I don't really see uh, sharing other than the landlord saying, we will give you an incentive for several years in the future where, you know, yeah, I accept. We don't know what the market's going to be like then, um, but um, we will we will allow you concessions now. So we'll allow you to drag some of that forward, um, but it won't be at a level that you would get under a deal if you were signing that deal up now. Right. So it might be twenty percent instead of thirty percent. It might be fifteen percent. Um, if uh, if for instance. Um, there is um, a tenant that's got a lease expiry at the end of this year and only wants to sign up for 12 months to see how things are going. Um, the landlord is and has in some circumstances with us offered a one month rent free. So 8% yeah, incentive yeah. Um, to extend the lease on your passing rental or increase the rental by 4%. Um, so, no, I don't believe at this point in time there is there is that sharing. Um, I mean, the, the other thing that um, was a strong theme, uh, so I should you know respond to that, that's, um, how will we say, D disappointing but not surprising, um, mm -hmm. sort of parties acting acting in that, uh, in that manner. Um, Another thing that you said in those earlier webinars that you did was any tenant uh, in the renewal phase at the moment or, or looking for new lease space should be pausing um, before taking any steps further. Nothing I'm hearing from you there would suggest that that has changed. Is that correct? Uh, I would I would say even even more so that has been reinforced with every week that goes by, um, and and. When we uh, when we started those webinars in in March, um, we're now we're now a little more than four months down the line. There was there was a considerable sense of of optimism that by September we'd be back to normal. Mm. Uh, the reality is we're we're a bit over four months into this now, and I think the sensible money is that however we're operating our business now. We've got clients that are fully back to work in Sydney. Um, however, we're operating our business now is probably um, at best how we'll operate it through to the end of this year. Mm, so another, another another five months or so, and some some are some are pushing out beyond there. I mean, a lot of interestingly and ironically, uh, a lot of the landlords that are saying. Um, you know, we're we're seeing we're seeing um, you know tenants wanting to get back in the office, uh, wanting that that energy level, feeling that that uh, productivity has started to drop. Um, at the same time, some of those landlords, their own offices are less than ten percent occupied, mm. and I yeah. think that's something in itself. I mean, yeah. AMP um, have mandated that no more than twenty percent of people will be in the office at any one time which essentially means if it's your day or your week in the office, you've still got a choice. So you're not getting the 20%, you're actually getting at best half of that. So 10% wow. in the office, 
And where, where are you guys currently located? Is that your office that you're in, Steve, at the moment? Kai, I think you're coming yeah. to home today. What's, what's I'm, the, I'm at home, yeah. What's the CBD like walking around? Um, I've been back into Brisbane a few times, but it is pretty quiet. But I heard from people I was speaking to that Sydney seems to be a little bit more sort of vibrant and energetic, certainly as at about a month or six weeks ago. Where, where are things at at the moment? I, I find in the morning, so kind of 8.30 to 9.30, there's a bit of feeling of people coming in. You know, yesterday it was raining quite a lot. There were umbrella, umbrellas everywhere. You kind of had that feeling right in place. But from 2 o'clock onwards, you know, when you're leaving, it's empty. That's what I sense. Yeah, yep. it's, it's Normally, there'd be more energy at 3 or 4 or 5 in the afternoon, people doing their thing, going, walking yep. around. I just find it's like thinking yesterday, there was no one around. It was weird, you know, right. at 3 o'clock. Um, so it feels quieter throughout the day, but everyone arriving... I guess people are coming into work and then staying in their office, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, or, or being conscious of the amount of time they're spending in enclosed spaces. Yeah, true. Um, Certainly business by business and a building by building situation. Um, I um, I think the buildings like Chifley Tower, they're, they're probably um, the one building that's got the most buzz and energy about it at the moment. One of our clients, Shore and Partners, are in there 100% all of their staff working wow. um, and, and we've, we've got other uh, firms in the financial advisory area that are similar. O others in that area are, are not. They're, they're either A team, B team or, or they're, they're, they're really low occupancy. Um, so it, it is a real mix. We, we're kind of eight to 10 people in the office out of 13, 14 um, on, a, on a daily basis. Typically, Monday and Friday, maybe a bit lower than that. Um, it is just really, really mixed circumstances at the moment. But there is, I, I would say from a month ago, we've certainly picked up the number of people on public transport. Mm. Yeah, that's a, it's very quiet that I, that I see here. I yeah. certainly wouldn't be, um, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be doing that personally at the moment, sort of using Ubers a bit more. Okay, well, that, that's a fairly sombre reflection of, of the state of things at the moment. The idea today is to perhaps look forward, um, perhaps with a, we can pick up a, a, an injection of optimism for the, the discussion. Um, what, and there, there are a few areas that I wanted to focus on. The first one I wanted to focus on was lease structuring. Um, and there are a lot of different aspects to that, but, you know, has, um, has the pandemic um, or will it drive changes in the way um, leases are structured? And there are a few headline points I have in my mind, um, certainly not limiting discussion to that, but, but thinking about things like just the term of leases, whether people will, um, you know, longer term leases will be less common, um, flexibility around term, um, sort of break rights, expansion rights, those kinds of things, incentives. Steve, you've spoken a lot about that. I'm keen to touch back in on that. And, and then also perhaps the obvious one from the pandemic and talking about risk allocation like whose responsibility whose responsibility is it or should it be um, events like this um and sort of keen to sort of dig into that because we, we may have, i think have some slightly differing views on on where that sits but um to, to to each of you what are you what are you seeing happen now where do you think um things things will go perhaps just starting with with term and and um and break rights and expansion and that, that kind of um term-based flexibility well, I think I think we're probably talking about um, 
two situations. The first being, um, can I kick the can down the road for a short period? Um, I don't think many firms at all will or indeed should lock in on long-term leases now, regardless of how flexible they can uh, they can have them, unless unless there are break clauses in there. Um, I really think that now is um, the time to even pay a premium to get a short-term position and just see what is happening in the world, what is happening in your own business. Um, because, and it, and it kind of touches on the point about the, the responsibility and the risk and the um, who, who bears um, the full responsibility for full rental in the future, uh, depending how things work out in this or any future pandemic or emergency situation. And, and landlords have, have clearly demonstrated in the last few months that the lease is the lease, you committed to it, you will pay me, unless there's a government mandate to say otherwise. Um, so I'm saying quite clearly now, well, okay, in the future, that's not gonna be the position. We're not gonna sign up on those sort of terms because there is a premises that we are not fully utilizing, whether, whether that's a mandate, a recommendation by government, um, or, or choice, um, how, how are we going to deal with that in the lease clauses? Because that, in fact, is going to potentially influence um, whether I sign up to a longer term or a, or a shorter term. If, if I'm locked in, we've got, a, we've got a law firm now, just in the last 24 hours or so, has made a call to pull back from the market. They've got 120 staff. They've said, bugger it. We're actually going to shut the office for potentially 18 months, and we will set up a city hub. And that hub might be 250, 300 square meters, that's all. Um, and we're, we're just going to um, ride it out, if that's the, the correct term. We're going to see what the landscape looks like in 12 months' time. But we've got this war chest in our pocket of well, what'll it be? Close to $4 million in rental that we would have otherwise been committed to had we, had we stayed put in our existing premises and, and done, a, done a short or long-term lease. Um, and that's the boldest move that I'll have seen in a while. And I think- The, the timing's be... kind to that particular client by the sounds of it. Yes, yes, it is. So they were they were close to exercising a three year option term at the end of March. Wow, I know. <laughs> wow. And we had other we had other clients exercise option terms in February of this year. Well, I remember you made a comment in, in one of those earlier discussions you had about someone doing it a few weeks early. You know, just make yep. sure you get it done. And oh goodness, yeah, I'm sure they didn't. Was... They didn't have to. Well, this, this well, I, I, as, as a lawyer that, you know, bears the responsibility for getting notice exercises right, you know, and the consequence of, say, missing an option exercise period, um, I can yeah. understand why someone would want to lock it in a few weeks earlier. Um, that's, that's, that's hard luck there. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some interesting points in, in that, Steve, um, which sort of spill into some of the other things that I wanted to talk about. And so if, if we have this 
idea of like a, a centralized hub, then then that to me, like the way that sort of I rationalize it in my mind is that the nature of the tenancy as we currently know it, um, so um, everyone being in an office and typically in one location, that that concept is going to be um, fragmented in a number of ways. Um, so there's, you know, and and I, I look at things like, um, you know, working from home as part of that fragmentation. I look at co-working and utilising that as part of the broader suite of, of occupancy solutions for any individual tenant as one of them. Um, and, and also physical separation by um, you know, suburban hubs and those sorts of things. And I think these, the, the, those three areas there tend to, tend to overlap. Um, perhaps going back to the, the tenant that you, or the, the client of yours that you were just mentioning. Um, so they're, they're, they're building, or they're, they're looking to have this small centralized hub, presumably CBD based, much smaller. What are the other pieces in the puzzle going to look like? Um, or, or where do you think that might go? Um, they don't know. That's that's mm. the thing, and that's why they're buying themselves. Well, they don't have to make that decision right now. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> well, that well, that's right, Alistair. I mean, and in a way, that's the, I uh, the the bolder you are now, I think you you're giving yourself the opportunity to really lead the way. And and you know, a, you know, a year ago, six months ago, workplace was about you know the war on talent, attracting, retaining staff, creating the best working environments, and you know, money was flowing and free breakfasts, <laughs> cool spaces. And, you know, now, now I think staff will be looking for who is leading the way and which organizations are being bold and brave and, yes. and, and how, and, and, and I think, you know, for, for us that have to manage staff as well, how are we doing that? We have to change the way. And, and the good thing for, for example, the client that Steve's referring to, they're practicing it now. They, they're, gearing up they're already in the trial like if you imagine we didn't have covid and steve they they just turned around to all their partners said well, i've got a great idea mm. everyone's going to go home we're going to set up a 200 square meter little hub in the city and that's the office of the future yep they would have been gone within a week you know they would have been <laughs> you know there would be well, a mutiny in the partnership whereas now it's kind of like well we've proven we were every week passes they're proving their ability to work in this manner, making it well. Every organization should be making it better. You shouldn't be waiting for things to go back to normal and then hoping it'll be fine. You should be continuing to improve the environment you're in now because let's just say everything did go back to normal and then there was another outbreak, we'd all be back here again. So you need to have those systems in place. And, you know, I had a question to Steve, what are they doing about paper and files and how's that going to move in the future? I imagine they're thinking about these things, you know, they mm. should be. So well, the, the reality is they've survived for four. Well, that's right. More than four months. They've got five people in the office at the moment out of 120. Um, and they're saying, well, why, why are we looking to commit to spending millions on rental and potentially not using any of that space? So, um, I mean, one thing that I, um, so it's very easy at the, at the depths of the, well, I'm hoping the depths of the current environment to speak in a um, sort of a doomsday kind of, uh, in a doomsday kind of way. But, but I, I do wonder, you know, as things come back um, to some sense of normality, I think everyone agrees that normal is not going to be normal as we knew it. Um, do, do, you, do you think then that, you know, 
when we talk about the amount of money that any organisation spends on rent, particularly you know in legal services, which obviously I know well and you guys know exceptionally well, um, an enormous amount of um, the expenditure goes to fancy offices. Do you think, even putting aside the various forms of fragmentation that will happen in some respect, do you think that at the end of the day they're just going to spend less as a proportion of, of, of total cost? Do you, do you think there will be that fundamental shift or will it be breaking up this core central unit and distributing it in a number of different ways again to be able to best suit, like, um, you know, to, 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 to attract the best people? Great question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the answer. Yeah. But, but I, I, I think, Steve, I think, I think that the evidence is there now. And again, six months ago, would you be do you you find very few companies that would take that risk to say, "Hey, guys, we're going to save a ton of cash in not paying rent, but we're still going to have a great business because we don't really need the space. We don't need a would be a bit too risky to even go down that line, and no one else has done it, and no, there's no precedent." Whereas now that the demonstrated saving and, you know, I just think as a conscious decision, as an owner of a business or a leader, you, you can't be ignored, especially with all the evidence. And as time passes, the efficiencies in the work that you're doing getting better and better and better, the argument should start to move away. Now, where, where I think it could change again is if the money starts flowing back in and the economy bolts you know, back to normal and everyone's making lots of money. And then they're like, oh, well, I know we were saving lots of money before with these small places, but now we're making lots of money. Let's just make them a bit bigger and a bit bigger and a bit bigger and then we're back to normal. I don't know, potentially. But, or maybe not, maybe they'll just continue saying, well, the profits just get bigger and bigger because we've got a smaller space. Well, well think, think of, think of um, a number of the major law firms um, who've had their best, best months ever in the COVID period. Um, think also of the fact that a, a national, if not international law firm, they look around their different offices, they, lo they look at Perth, um, Giles and I were on a call to Perth yesterday, um, most of the firms over there are saying we're, you know, if, if not back to normal, we're certainly more than 50% of our staff in here, we're, we're in a bubble that we're enjoying, um, what's the problem? We haven't had a new case here for, for a couple of months. Um, Brisbane also talking confidently. Um, there, there will there will certainly be a number of people in the firm that say, no, there's no way we should be shedding space. We have a we have a legal brief in Melbourne at the moment, a couple of thousand square meters. One one part of the firm, uh, not residing in Melbourne, um, is is saying we really should be looking at working more efficiently and trimming down that space area. And then there, there are the um, you know, more traditional um, viewpoints. I won't use the word dinosaurs, um, but they, they're saying, no, um, we, we should be maintaining our, our current space ratio. Um, so it, it's it, wow. to them, it's going to be a Not hard even thing. a pandemic, Steve. I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> But, but yet, but yet the, 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 the craziest thing is you talk to virtually all of the law firms yep. several weeks into the pandemic. So we're still talking early April here, um, blown away, absolutely blown away by the limited impact on productivity, on profit, on um, IT systems, being able to, to cope um, 
I'm, I'm also cautious, Alistair, as to, you know, the, the people that you and I would talk to, the people that tend to have a voice on these things, um, tend to look at things through the lens of their own experiences and their, whether, whether that is the work that they're undertaking, um, their home circumstances, and they, they make a broad brush, brush assumption about the, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but the, the, the masses, yep. um, the, you know, the, the, the generally younger people, the people in different um, residential circumstances who may have a completely different view on, on whether they prefer to be in the office or don't prefer to be in the office, how they can work from home, um, whether they need that connectivity. Personally, I get a lot of energy out of the office. At the same time, I know that I can work very productively on specific tasks from a home environment, mm -hmm. an environment away from the office. Uh, um, but it, it's different for everyone and, diff and even, even people of the same um, genre, um, age, experience, can have a different mindset as to how they work most productively and from where. Um, it, it's a it's a complex situation, but COVID has thrown everything up in the air. Sorry, Kai, you were going to jump in on something there. No, 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 no. Sorry, I thought my um, I mean, and sorry, Stephen. To that point, don't forget those that are benefiting the most from the increase in profit are yeah. are the partners that were sitting in their offices. Well, never sitting in their offices because they were always out anyway. And have the big study and and you know steve it's a good point about the young you know the younger generations coming through now about l and d and you know how is that going to you know i, I don't you know we, we don't do a lot of learning and development about a lot of organizations too and how they're rolling that out and those components and um i think so to think about as well i, I will we'll, as with everything in life we'll sit some we'll, we'll land somewhere in between mm. the extremities yeah mm. i mean uh, the i mean the interesting comments and you sort of elaborating on some of the things you've said before there, Steve, which I find really interesting. One thing that, that I certainly agree with is that people are making assumptions about people's behaviour and preferences without any understanding of what they are. And I think even um, like a large organisation can say, you know, survey their junior staff and ask them how they're going and the response can come back in a certain way. You know, those that ask the question can dictate largely what the response to those things are going to be. So. I think that, um, and I don't profess at all to understand what uh, a cohort of, of um, say, professional services workers that are much younger than me would, would want to do and what they would prefer, but I do know that they think very differently to me. They interact in a different way. Um, even though I like to think I know a little bit about technology, they engage with that in a different way and they use that differently in their social interactions. So um, I think there's a lot of learning that has to happen. Um, I think that my, I mean, my view, having worked, I mean, I've got an interesting perspective because I've worked in just about every office arrangement imaginable. Like I've, I've, I've done, I've done my research so I can speak from experience in, in all different sorts of, um, ways of working, uh, that, that I think things will, um, I think this has been a big enough shake for things to change. And I talked about sort of fragmentation of the tenancy unit and I, and I think that will um, I think that will happen in a number of different ways but 
I think one of the, the core things for me is variety of workspace. I don't think even in, like I find, and I'm not, you know, um, let's hope not, not, not everyone is the same as me, but, but I find that a variety of locations for work, even on an individual task in an individual day is a helpful thing. So sitting in a bright shiny office tower in an office with a great view um, has certain benefits, but I can't do the same thing in there all day. I will get more out of myself from a productivity point of view and overall well-being point of view, if I have the opportunity to go and, and physically move around and do different things, perhaps part of my day is in meetings, off-site, part of my day might be from home, part of my day might be in a different place. And I think that variety is is something that w will be an important factor. So my, my guess, and I'm only reflecting on my own needs here, so sort of falling foul of my own criticism just before, but my, my guess is that things will be become more fragmented um, and and that's that's where things are going and I think that will have some interesting um, that will play out in interesting ways for what it's worth that's that's my thinking um, if I can because um, I think we go all day on this one, I think it's a fascinating area but um, one of the other things I was keen to talk about is is the idea of risk allocation under leases so I know there's been um, you know, people sit there and they would say, oh my God, that, you know, the standard commercial office lease or, or commercial lease in Australia um, doesn't have a force majeure clause. It doesn't deal with something like a pandemic. So the tenant is just you know, left to their own devices. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's, a, there's a moral argument as to risk allocation, but I think you've got to start from the position of, of saying that, you know, as with all contractual relationships, you know, risks are allocated between the parties and there is a cost associated with those uh, and and they need to be mindfully managed. And just by saying that I'm going to put a, what is potentially a significant risk from one party to the other has a cost, has an implication. It's not just as straightforward as saying it goes from party A to party B. Um, so I know, Steve, you've spoken a bit about this. I have a feeling this is one of the things you might be talking about in your webinar on Thursday the 30th. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Like, what, what's your reflection of how things have happened to date and the soundings you would have had, obviously, with plenty of tenants, but perhaps also some landlords? Um, is there, do you, do you think there is a change in allocation of risks like these coming in the future? Um, unfortunately, not at this point, but the, um, the, the pendulum swing is is certainly changing. Um, there there is an opportunity for for tenants to um, to influence the outcome in a much greater way than they they have been able to over the the previous years. And I'm really talking at least thirty years. Um, so we are we've we've already come from. Um, a massively landlord-dominated market, um, and look, make, make no mistake, the the concessions that landlords have given to tenants over the last period have been as a result of government intervention. That was always anticipated to be short-term. I I sat in yesterday on a so I I, I feel like. Um, almost the, the fly on the wall sometimes. Uh, I've sat on the Property Council Commercial Office Committee in New South Wales for the last 14 years. Um, and I, I, I don't know if you recall, you guys might, might be a bit too young for it, but um, the Property Council used to be called BOMA, 
the Building Owners and Managers Association, still is in the US. I think they realized that gave the game away. Um, they are, they're a lobby group for the property industry. They're a lobby group for landlords. Um, and when the, when the National Cabinet Code came out and the, the PCA knew that um, it was going to be mandated, they did everything possible to lobby the state government to water down the provisions. Now, in the words of the New South Wales president yesterday afternoon, um, we didn't get what we wanted on the code, but it could have been worse. I, Does that I, mean it was fair? Uh, forget fair. Hmm. Is, this is all about lobby groups. It's about factions. Um, tenants don't have that lobby group. We're, we're the de facto lobby group for, for tenants. Mm -hmm. Um, so where, where does that take us on the on the bigger picture? Well, I think now that with tenants having more choice as we move into the future and the new future, um, if I if I acting on behalf of our clients, um, if we've got ten options in front of us, and we say, okay, we will here's here's a clause from the standard New Zealand lease called the no access in emergency clause and yeah that you can tweak and vary it a little bit but basically it says if i can't fully operate my business from these premises it's it's very similar to the destruction clauses mm. but with the right of termination built in after a certain period of time correct yeah absolutely correct um that the that the parties will agree the um to what extent my business has been, forget the fact that I can still make money from home, to what extent my business has been impacted by me not being able to occupy the premises. Mm -hmm. That to me sounds eminently fair. It's not saying if I can't occupy the office, I'm not gonna pay rental and the landlord's gonna wear it. It's talking about an equitable basis with a third party mediator in there if necessary. Mm -hmm. And to me, that has got to be the sensible way forward. I mean, we haven't we haven't even talked about yet um, the elephant in the room, the the absolute bloodbath that we're going to be experiencing in the property industry, the massive downturn in um, in, in premises um, occupation and new premises take up, um, which is going to last for many years to come, mm -hmm. many years to come. Um, but I think regardless of that, I think that we should be looking at structural changes in leases. Um, and we're, we're already seeing, and I was, I was talking as well, one of the things we haven't spoken about is the um, face rentals. Face rentals have inexorably over 30 years See, gone can up. I just pause you on that for a second? Because I'm keen to dig into that. But just I have one question on that. You're saying, you know, the Property Council is, is the landlord's advocacy. Um, uh, and there's no there's no similar thing on on the tenant side, uh, I guess, uh, and that's a, certainly the case. But if you look, say, um, you know, there is cut to the question: Do, do you think that um, as we have regulation in the retail um, leases space, do you think there's a chance that some regulation will come into um, other forms of commercial tenancy, office, industrial? to try and manage things like this, to try and, like, do, do you think it will stop, say, at a clause similar to the, the New Zealand 
um, uh, clause that you just mentioned uh, in a sort of a catastrophic event. Do, do you think those things will come to fruition or do you not think the appetite's there? Um, well, certainly there's, um, there's, a, there's a total lack of appetite from the landlords. Um, <laughs> you could, you, you could, That's not you surprising could, though. You could ask me in 12 months time. Yep. And I think if we if we've had a continuation, then possibly. But I think I mean the the New Zealand situation came off the back of Christchurch, mm -hmm. um, and and uh, I don't know the the full story as to how it came in. It certainly wouldn't have been the property council lobbying for it, and there would have been a lot of resistance from landlords. Yes. But it is it is now a standard part of their list. And what last point on question on this? And you touched on it in something you'd spoken about earlier. Um, the impact of insurance in in this situation. Uh, and I know you'd said that you'd spoken to a number of um, of brokers, and um, it is rare for a pandemic to be um, to be covered under an insurance policy, and that was a reaction to SARS in the noughties, I think. Um, is, you know, I look at this again, coming back to sort of base principles, we have this existential threat that impacts both parties and risk allocation is always a question of, of cost and which party is best able to, to manage that. Um, there are pros and cons to say whether this kind of thing should sit on landlord or tenant side. Is this something that should be considered more broadly as as a sort of a risk absorption platform by way of a, a broader net of insurance do you are you hearing much discussion about that do you have any views on whether insurance could provide a solution here or will we all forget once we're through this and nothing ever happened from it mm, i i suspect probably the the latter mm. um yeah i i, I think well look the, but the straight reality is you can get insurance for anything. Uh, it's, a, it's all a question of, of, of cost and arbitrage. Of course. Of course. Um, uh, but as a, as a standard... Um, but, but thinking about, you know, maybe even... Um, because this, the, you know, the, um, the pessimist in me says that I don't think this is the last time we're going to see an event like this in all of our lifetimes. Um, I hope I'm wrong there. Um, so, you know, I, I wonder whether the government would look at something like this and regulating an insurance pool. Um, if, if you leave it, uh, I, I don't think insurers would would um, would look at something like this in a way that to give a sort of a commercially sensible outcome for the party. So it would probably be so cost prohibitive, prohibitive that um, it yeah. would never go anywhere. Um, but, you know, we have certain small segments of mandated insurance, like in sort of the motor vehicle arena, there's... Some. I just wonder whether anyone's talking about that because it's very easy to say party A can deal with it or party B can deal with it and this is fair or this is not. But at the end of the day, if it's a real risk that we think is going to come back, is there a, is there a smarter way? It's just a, just a thought I had. Look, I actually think it's a great thought and I, I think that landlords would be much more accepting if there was some sort of uh, policy along those lines um, that... Um, that could either be absorbed within outgoings or or a sharing of the premium, I and mean, I think tenants would be up for that as well. Mm. I, I think it's it's quite a sensible approach. Um, 
it would probably be something that would be a little a little bit down the line. I mean, it's and, and insurers would look at it on okay, what are what are the likely risks to us of this? Yes, you know, like bit like the termite insurance, the flood insurance. Mm. You know. and, Flood, floods are a, um, a, a, a an analogous situation to a point. Obviously, we don't all of Australia mm. doesn't flood, so you know it's. Um, I can see some challenges there, but it just seemed to be a third limb of a discussion that I, I didn't see getting mm. a lot of airtime. Um, yep. Steve, I, I'm not forgetting about incentives, so I'm really keen to talk to you no. about that. But I'm just conscious of Kai sitting there um, and <laughs> listening to, right. to all of this. Kai, I, I'm, I'll dob you in here. You're, um, you've previously worked in, um, in a very large and uh, prominent software company um, dealing with workplace matters for them. Um, and so you have an insight into a different industry, perhaps that works in a different way, perhaps that has adopted some of the things that the broader commercial market is starting to come into uh, a bit earlier or as, as, as a matter of course. Um, you've also made some comments um, in your in your Lawyers Weekly podcast. You had said, and sorry if I sort of, correct me if I, if I don't relay this in the right way, but effectively good design is good design. And you think that the pandemic will be in certain respects, um, a phase, and that we will uh, that, that won't necessarily have fundamental impacts on design. Correct me if I um, if I sort of misconstrued what you were saying there, but yeah, I, I'm I'm keen to 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 dig into this idea of the impact on design. We've spoken about a number of macro factors um, that might impact on where people are, how how they might fragment the workplace. Um, let's just talk about the design of a typical commercial office. What changes do you think are you seeing happen already and in your crystal ball you can see coming? So, so the, in answer to the first part of the question about how you interpreted what I said, it was, you know, six months ago, designers would have sat down with the organisation and said, right, you need to create a workplace that, you know, as a, manifest, a physical manifestation of your culture and values, is agile, flexible, able to adapt to, you know, different circumstances, contract, expand, is efficient in space, good principles of design. But each organization and how they approach that process of creating the workplace would, you know, knock back certain components where we, you know, we don't need to be efficient. We've got lots of money. Let's make them space is bigger or we can't be flexible because we don't have the IT you know, technology, no one can work from home, blah, blah, blah. So there have just been roadblocks to components of good design that would then ultimately establish an, an office workplace design. I think now the conversations can be much more fluid, open, more evidence-based examples. And I think what it will give designers the ability to kind of push the thought around what design will be. So that that mainly, the, I think that's the difference. I think crystal balling, and I was saying it this morning, is I think the conversation now could be how small can you go? Mm -hmm. um, that's the difference. And every, and every organization will be different on management so, so structures, leadership, yeah. Yeah, cool. I mean, let, let's unpack that for a second because Steve, I know you've been fairly vocal on density um, increasing. Um, I, I don't necessarily share that view. I've heard some differing views from others in the market that I've spoken to about it. So, so there's there's the um, I suppose the micro sense of, of human density. You've been used to you know a desk at home of a certain size. So, you know it's really not that bad, is it? You can come back to have you know that in the office. So that's one aspect. And then also 
um, Kai, to your point about things getting smaller. Um, maybe, maybe smaller. Look, I think one, one I don't think smaller as, as, as the as the head office smaller. Like, is yeah, it no, I, a change I, well, of shape two, as well as size? Two things. I don't think you apply density anymore. I just think that's. I think. I, hmm. I don't think you can apply density. You can't say I've got a hundred people. I need ten square meters. That's a, you know that would have been efficient for a law firm or fourteen or eighteen. I think now it's like, what do you need? Um, how will you be working in the future? Yep. And what proportion of staff can work from home? What are your you know what are your sharing ratios? Okay, we'll work that out now. What do you actually need? Are you going to have clients visiting? Probably not, or maybe sometimes. Or I actually need somewhere where the you know, the partnership can get together, whether it be COVID safe or not, to convene for a period of time yep. once a week or whatever. So now it'll be, I, th I think workplaces will actually be considered more carefully around actual requirements for space and every organization would be different. But the challenge is, you know, you can be, you can be, maybe small is the wrong word to use, more efficient, mm -hmm. smarter, smarter design, right? Which is good design anyway. Yep. Um, as opposed to just saying, well, you know, I, we did a law firm X, they were three square meters a person. Well, you know, what are you talking about? Well, this is why they only got 300 square meters in the city because that's all they need. Yes. This is, their organization is different to yours. You feel you need, so you need 10 square meters. It's yep. just going to vary. I don't think there's going to be, you know, a, but there never has been a one size fits all, but even less so now. Well, law, law firms have been, well, I mean, there, there is, from what you're talking about here to perhaps what we currently have, um, there is a very similar blueprint, isn't there, to how sort of offices Generally. Are, are set up. Um, and, and that example of the client you've got is, is such a great one to talk around, particularly as they're starting in their process. So do you think, is it, is it a matter of saying, okay, we need to make a commitment to something now, and so that something is going to be a very small space that has these core features that are really about... Um, you know, the most important of meetings and presentations and interactions with, you know, the, uh, either internally or with the rest of the world. Are they, are they then going to build on additional components to that? Because, um, you know, one thing I think is that people like working from home, not in the sense that they actually like working at their home necessarily, but I think that they enjoy certain aspects of not having to do the commute. Um, and, and they're, you know, for, and it differs for everyone, um, but that, that, that time saving, that greater interaction um, with community, with family, with, with other interests, I think is more of a driving factor than I like sitting at my kitchen desk. Mm. Um, and Steve, to, to, to your point about that, that density issue, um, I would, you know, you said people are used to sitting in, um, in, in that small, in small confines. They might be, but they're probably not used to sitting at their kitchen desk with four other people sitting also at the kitchen desk and then another kitchen desk next to them with another 10 people on it. So, um, uh, so, so I see back, sorry, Kai, to your point, I, I really, um, perhaps it's just me willing these things into existence, but I see um, some real interest in, uh, in office hubs in suburban areas, um, greater connectivity. Uh, and this is really going to be, you know, people think that they're utilising technology for working at the moment, and, and I think it goes well beyond um, a conversation on Zoom, um, but be able to integrate what is a very fragmented and distributed workforce in different locations. Um, I, I think that's quite fascinating and exciting, both from putting that structure in place and, and working 
um, and working within it. So, I mean, I, I can imagine certainly that um, a, a foothold in sort of the key centres where people expect it, certainly um, subscription type usage, or whether it be a, you know, a suburban WeWork or whatever other provider it is or, or, or other things like that, I can see that being part of the, the picture as well. Um, and so I guess then coming back, and this ties in, in a few themes here, what, when I think about what does design, how does, um, how does the design of office change? I mean, you already spoken about effectively lopping off some bits that you don't need. Kai, but but I also wonder about because um, you know people are still going to need there will still be tr traditional offices. I don't think they're all going to run away in a hurry. But no. do, do, are they are they going to get built in a slightly um, more reusable manner? Like, are we talking about a greater modularity and consistency of the physical bits and pieces that go to building um, a, an office space? Because you know there's enormous waste. And I see this is a um, sort of a, an area of, of, of great interest for you, but there is an enormous waste um, and hence cost in reuse or lack of reuse of fit out. Uh, are we going to see some changes there to give people the flexibility um, of space that perhaps they're going to want post all of this um, current situation? I think, I think it's worth jumping right back and again to, to some of the... Um, what, what probably to most people um, look like pretty wacky ideas now right at the start of the of the pandemic um, and and I think particularly those ridiculous perspex screens that were starting to appear and be marketed um, and and the, and the worst to me the worst examples of those were the ones that actually provided a, a hood an enclosure so it was it wasn't just a vertical screen between you and the person opposite you it was two sides and it was a lid so you're working inside this plastic box mm -hmm. presumably stop the you know the the aerosol effect um, now I, I i don't i don't see any life for those um, then there was the the question of um desk size would we need bigger desks to to um, to have the appropriate social distancing in in the in the medium to long term moving forward um, i don't see desk sizes changing um, i also you know it's the it's the end of hot desking you're never going to see people sharing desks again um, i don't agree with that either um, the reality is lip side of that <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't think that will happen either um... I mean, most, most people and, and some of the big law firms had, had already migrated to 100% all of their staff on, on laptops. To the extent that you have a laptop, particularly to the extent that you don't have a, a phone handset on your desk, it takes like 15, 20 seconds to wipe that desk down. I personally, I believe it should be the responsibility of the person at the desk, not a cleaner that comes in and does any deep cleaning or any other form of cleaning at night. It is, it's a proper... Um, wipe down with a uh, with a, with a proper um, you know, the device that's that's provided there, um, just a some form of wet wipe um, to to clean your desk, and then you bring your laptop in there, you plug it into the screen, um, and you and you're there to go. Ideally, you don't have arms on your chairs, but then I've, for many years I've been an advocate of no arms on on chairs. Um, and this, this, yeah, indeed. And there's your, there's your desk setup. Yeah. Um, I actually don't think there's going to be a, a big 
change from what we have seen um, in in recent times and years and the and the progression moving forward? I guess we're, I mean there's the aspect of um, do we change how the officers set up physically to stop the spread of um, something like COVID nineteen? But um, I was also thinking about you know one of the things we discussed in um, as part of the first idea of, of lease structuring and greater flexibility of leases. Flexibility in a lease comes at a cost. Um, so if you as a, a tenant you know, want the ability to take a lease for eight years but to walk away from it at four, that, that doesn't come for nothing. And, and one of those costs is what you do with what's left behind. And if we're going to be in a more dynamic world in terms of use of office space, um, other components, the building blocks of fit out themselves going to be more plug and play quite literally um, it, so that it's less bespoke fitting out of a space and far more modularity that can genuinely be taken and reused so an individual floor could be repurposed or you can take away an existing fit out and use it in a different building it's it's that kind of thing that that i thought i mean that would make sense to me i know it's not an easy thing to do but do you think we might start to see some of those things I mean, it, we're already there, I think, yeah. by, by law firms. Well, uh, you're, you're pretty proactive in this, Steve. I, you know, all the parts in your office that have been repurposed from, from other people's fit out. But I, I still get the sense that that's not common. And to, um, you know, if the subleasing, you know, the subleasing market now, which, you know, before we, we turn the mics on, we're speaking a bit about that, about how significant that's going to be. That's not an easy thing physically to do cutting up different tenancies, repurposing fit out. It, it's it's not straightforward. Um, it could be a lot more straightforward. Um, sorry, Kai, did you, did you have some thoughts on that one? No, I mean, th th again, that's good design, you know, flexibility and- But it's you know, not, being, it's being not able currently to... a factor though, is it? No, 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 no I'm just saying, just saying with, with regards to having an office that's adaptable and things yes. can move. I mean, you still need built, you still, you know, there's still the balance of acoustics and built environment and those sort of things to consider. Um, but I, just just going back to hubs, having office hubs, yeah. you know, um, so, I mean, something Steve and I talked about maybe last week around, there's going to be a lot of distressed street frontage retail, I'm sure, in the next six months. And to your point then, Alistair, having a, like, you know, if you can imagine a plug and play office environment where you can go to, you know, depending on how distressed the landlord is, of course, is to say, look, can we set up a, you know, a temporary or maybe a semi-permanent space that people can go to and it be key, you know, whether it be, you know, day by day or hour by hour, whatever it is, mm. people can use so they don't have to do the commute to the CBD and that's part of the overall offer to your staff. And then if a better retail tenant comes along, you just pick it all up, take it off to the next place. Yep. Great. I, I think that sounds like a good idea. Mm. Um, you just, at the moment, I think people are trying to work out whether everyone will be worried about commuting and you know in three in two months time we have no cases in australia we've had it all control of the borders and now everyone's back on the bus coming into the city again and back you know don't mind the commute because they're fed up of being at home i don't know yeah but i i think and again just you know i'm projecting my own views mm. here um so sample size of one uh i would love the opportunity to be able to go somewhere close to home and have a workspace there um and it wouldn't necessarily have to be where I do all of my work, I probably still have yeah. something set up yeah. at home, but that flexibility would be interesting. And, and the, you know, the repurposing of retail space, I think 
is a really interesting idea. What one sort of thought bubble I've got, you know, when you think about if you think about shopping centres, and I think they're a great opportunity for and an obvious opportunity for um, suburban hubs. They're well located with with infrastructure. There's a sort of um, symbiotic relationship between you know the retail and and um, the services they provide and the you know the office hold, the offices holding people um, who can go and utilise those mm. services. But you know, it, it, in, in digging down into the micro a little bit, and I think like one area that I think is going to struggle is you look at the cinema industry, um, and, and I think you know, for a lot of reasons that as a sector is really going to struggle. And you think then about how a cinema looks in a shopping centre, um, and I, I can't imagine that that structure is going to look the same in a few years time um, post pandemic i think there'll be um, some long-term changes or fundamental changes there and so you think about this massive space in a shopping center that um, yep. is detached from the rest of um, the rest of the the center so it's not great retail space you don't get foot traffic mm. i can see a you know an opportunity there potentially to have to utilize those kinds of voids in the future for, for those things um, Anyway, that's... Hotels too, maybe, Alistair, you never know. Yeah, and, and um, you know, I know that this is certainly not a new thing. It's been it's been done, but, you know, utilising restaurant or, or particularly restaurant space um, that would be utilised normally at, uh, at night predominantly, um, sort of opening that up for office use, particularly in suburban. Like there's a nice restaurant just a walk away from me. I think oh, I could go and take my laptop there and sit and work for a little bit. That would work quite, um, quite nicely. Interesting. Um, Alistair, just just to finish off back on the on the the, the reuse of, of components. Yep. Um, yes, we're we're in the fortunate position where we where we see components come up, and and we've been able to to rotate through and you know gradually improve and um, and change our um, our pieces within our own fit out. Um, most most people at a point in time want to take what's available and. Fit out and move on. Um, we again, because we have access to stuff, we we try really hard when we're aware of stuff being available. But in most cases, there's a there's a time frame disconnect between um, those components having to dismantle them, put them in storage, then reassemble them and, and put them back, and it, it generally all gets too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do we do try really hard. We've been, you know, with with a handful of our clients, um, we've been able to take furniture from from one fit out and move it across to another fit out, and, and be quite successful there. It's it's time consuming, and sometimes it just doesn't work. But I do believe that fit outs generally, other than law firms, are 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 and have moved to be a more ubiquitous model. Yep. So that a fit out often will suit the next person and the next person. So long as you don't get sucked in by the designers who either want to create a circle and carve it up into four workstations, so you're getting a quadrant to work at as opposed to a straight bench, or the or the old kidney beans. Interesting. Um, I'm conscious of time. We're, we, we're getting um, we're getting close to the end here. I've got a couple more questions. Just. Wanting to, to check, do you guys have a few more minutes, or do you need to wrap it now? Uh, another another five to ten minutes. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Um, well, Steve, incentives. Sorry, I did cut you off there mm. before because I was I was keen to sort of dig deeper on on that point we were talking about. Um, 
I'm keen to know where, like, what's happening at the moment that you see, where you think they're going um, to get to, and perhaps touching on, this might be part of your answer, this this idea of face rents um, finally um, coming back into line after many years of just continuing to ratchet up. So land, landlords said yesterday in, in dialogue, in fact, it was uh, it was Marcus from, from Brookfield um, in, in our prep discussion for, for tomorrow with Rob Harley. Um, he said that, oh yeah, but the thing with incentives is tenants want to pay for their fit outs. So, you know, the incentives are, are always going to be there. So therefore the face rents will go up. Um, I, I don't, I don't, and I've heard this before. If, if the tenants simply wanted to pay for their fit out out of the incentive, and that was the only impact on having the incentives there, then incentives would stay at the same level, but they don't. Now, in a ridiculous case in, um, in, in Perth, in the last landlord-driven market, we're looking 2012, 13, 14, incentives were zero. You would think if the if the argument about the tenant wanting the, the incentive to pay for their fit out ran true, then the the rentals would simply have spiked more, and you would still have an incentive there. Um, but the reality is that, that that's not the case. So, what unfortunately the landlords for the last thirty years have seen rents rise inexorably, some somewhere between four point two and four point five percent per annum compound. Now we all know that inflation and CPI has, has not been running at anything remotely close to that. So what does that mean? It means bigger incentives. In an equilibrium market, incentives must go up to the extent that for now, for the last three years, you've had incentives at more than 50% in Perth. Now, are we gonna get back to that situation in, in Sydney? It's, we've never really had 50% incentives on average, but we've had 40% incentives in the early 90s, case in point. Mm -hmm. If ever there was a case to say face rentals need to come down, it is it is now. The, and any argument about valuations is, I mean, it clearly illustrates the nonsense of any valuations that say it, it's going to value the building higher if we keep those face rents way up there can you just you can you explain that like i know it's not an easy thing i'm actually trying to line up a podcast with a valuer to talk about valuation mm -hmm. impacts um, so, um even if selfishly just to understand it myself but what what is the value what's the premise of valuations being higher by maintaining a higher base rent um look i'm probably not the best person to um explain this but i but i actually haven't come across the best person yet to explain okay it. Well, well we might park that one um i'm looking no, for no, that no, from, from, to, to, from what i understand yep. it, it is to do with um the the valuation of the period beyond a lease term that it doesn't take account of any incentive payments beyond beyond that lease term so it it assumes that the rentals will increase so let's say you're valuing on a 10-year basis mm. and and you've got a tenant in there that's got five years to run it assumes that the tenant will continue to pay the face rental in years six seven eight nine ten right doesn't take account of the incentive that would be needed to keep them there okay. which is which is a bit silly 
That's that's a great consensual hallucination. Um, I'll, I'll, um, I'll I'll prompt you when I when I have that other discussion if I can line that up. Um, I'm I'm keen to learn a bit more there. Kai, um, just to wrap a, a couple of things, um, I was keen to direct at you. Um, one of them is what you the, the concept of meeting rooms and the significance or perhaps the proportion of meeting rooms um, that that they as as um, as it relates to the, the entire amount of space that is taken. And, and again, if, if we're talking legal services, which the three of us know quite well, um, there's a lot of meeting rooms, but it's a high percentage of the, of the total footprint. So putting aside potential fragmentation of the tenancy, you know, the idea you're talking about 300 square metres, um, uh, do, do you think people will start to have less meeting rooms driven by two things, this is my theory anyway. Um, one is uh, that more meetings will be held virtually just because people are getting used to this kind of communication, even though people probably prefer meet in person, there's an efficiency that comes with that. Um, and secondly, that this kind of meeting being forced, this method of meeting virtually that's been forced on people um, through the pandemic has shone light on just how many meetings a lot of people tend to sit in. Perhaps they'll look again at the number of meetings that they take regardless of how they might have them. What do you think? Oof. I, well... Are we over-meetinged? No, well, and I think... Will I think that you impact need to, you, on I, the number of meeting rooms? I think you need to classify meetings uh, in, you know, back of house, front of house, you know, meeting clients. Well, well what, uh, whatever, whatever would be using those meeting room facilities in a typical okay. atmosphere. So, so traditionally, in a more agile environment, activity-based working, any, any environment with a sharing ratio, you have a much higher proportion of enclosed spaces because you need to give people choice to be able to move from their desk to an environment that's acoustically sound. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a one-person meeting room. Two-person meeting room, three-person, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think you're probably going to end up. Well, you've seen the booth in our office, haven't yes. you, Alistair? Mm -hmm. Now, that's that. You more of. I reckon you'll see more of those one-person enclosed spaces that allow people to move into to have the Zoom meeting. Because yep. you and, still need to go. We, we work, the newer WeWork fitouts um, have a lot of those spread. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think you know that's that's what you will see. Um, you'll need because you can't do this in the open. Well, you can if you only have 10% occupancy. Yeah, that's easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, you know, p potentially more. And then, yeah, with regards to, you know, I think like any good meeting room is one that's adaptable. You know, the furniture can be moved. It can be a stand-up. It can be an eight-person, a six-person. Um, you know, yes, sometimes there's costs associated with having that adaptability in walls moving, et cetera. But it's just really driving the efficiency of an enclosed space. So you might not necessarily have more built rooms, but you might have a higher function off those yeah. rooms, a smarter use of technology and the like. Um, but again, and to be honest with you, Alistair, I know, I know this is a bit of a cop-out, but it vary. It will vary from organization to organization and the work they do and how they interact and what they need. And um, but, but I think to your point, Alistair, the conversation now is like, dear client, how many meeting rooms did you like? Well, we used to have four or six person in the mm. boardroom and like, okay, well, do you need them now? Mm. Well, you know, well, let's talk about it. How did you work? How did you work in the last four months? What do you need? You know? Mm. So you can just, I think with design of the office full stop, there is a lot more conversation to be had, a lot more challenging to really drive down to what's right moving into the future. 
I think. Yeah, um, I'm uh, interested in um, how, um, yeah, we, 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 if we, you're asking about how, how, sorry, for what purpose meeting rooms we use, if we talk about externally facing meetings, client interactions, um, the thing that one aspect that interests me is um, as more, you know, particularly that the overt selling things, not, not a meeting, like if you're a lawyer and you're having a meeting on a particular transaction, that's you need a meeting room for that typically, or you, you, t you traditionally have, but I'm talking more about, um, you know, catered events, those sorts of things, seminars, those kinds of things, which were an important part of the sort of the, the marketing outreach from those sorts of organizations. I wonder whether increased use of digital means to connect and engage with clients, clients who have less time on their hands to make a physical trip for an hour or two or for a dinner or, or whatever. I, I, I'm interested to see how those changes, if they come to fruition, obviously I think they will, how those changes will potentially impact on how many meeting rooms do we need, how many functions, are we, you know, how many functions are we going to run, how, how many client events are we going to have, how many seminars are we going to have, if all of a sudden saying, well, we used to have, you know, uh, 30 seminars over a particular three-month period coming up to the end, say, of the, um, of the legal CLE year, which is when you have a lot of these sorts of things. So we need certain space for that. Well, actually, now we're servicing that need by an app and some more fragmented mm -hmm. learning things. We don't need that anymore. I think that is a really interesting shift. I know it's a bit off point, but... Um, no, the... well, well, here's the interesting thing, Alistair. I, I was finding, you know, over the last two years that a lot of organisations were saying, too many of our functions and engagements with clients are happening out of the office off-site and that was mainly driven by you know lack of space lack of functionality lack of adequate technology but also a sense of why are we why are we driving clients away from our workplace we want to bring them to our workplace mm -hmm. to, you know to, and that was part of a you know that's you know part of engaging with your client I suppose that's the bit I'm challenging. I'm challenging. Oh, no, no, I know, yeah. I know you are. So, so, and, you know, we were getting clients saying like, you know, we had a client in Melbourne that was building a huge client facing space, mm. really. Um, and then when the pandemic started, the first thing they said is, huh, we probably won't need as big a client space anymore. But I don't know. I challenged that in a way too, because I think what, what was interesting is the clients that didn't have enough space and were hiring spaces offsite and doing things offsite never thought to themselves, why don't we create a digital environment that can encourage clients to interact with us. They never mm. thought it, right? Um, but I wonder whether, again, it's just, it, there'll still be the need. I think maybe the difference now, Alistair, is you'll have spaces that are for both staff and clients interacting, like you being used together in yep. one. I think still you'll have, you know, whether it's toned down, I, it should be toned down. Um, but again, in six months' time, we have you know, no community cases, no for three months. And, yep. Why can't you have a hundred people in a room anymore? I don't know. Yeah, I and mean, it's it's still well, is. Yeah. I, I think that's a question of time. Like where yeah, do, I think do, so. do so people have the time? Important. Like what 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 law, law, law firm am I at today to get my CLE point? Like where where am I? Oh, I'm here. Like I think I think that's the mindset of a lot. I I, I question the brand, uh, the, the strength of the brand interaction um, that comes from those um, events a lot of the time. Anyway. I think I think we're we're running up on time. Um, okay. I, I could go all day talking about these things. Um, Steve, uh, Kai, thanks so much for taking the time. But Kai, I'm not going to let you go without the standard last question. Steve, I oh, see. I should say your podcast, our very first podcast, still has the highest number of downloads. 
not by much, but you're you're still winning. So it's, um, go, go back and look in the archives if, if you want to hear Steve on, on the very first podcast that I did. Um, Kai, I have a standard question. The question is, what are you obsessed about at the moment? Um, can be something deep and meaningful, can be something trivial. Outside of work, outside of family, what's something you spend a lot of time on that people wouldn't typically know? <laughs> other, than, okay. other than doing the master gamer, I, look I, with the headphones and... I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not obsessed. I'm not obsessed. I'm becoming very interested in sneakers. Right. And the billion dollar industry that uh, is the reselling of shoes. Interesting. And maybe perhaps becoming obsessive in my spare time of trying to find sneakers that I can buy at retail pricing. Right. And, and what's your, um, What's your, what are your kicks of choice at the moment? What, what's, oh, it's, what's first, well, it's, first in the rotation? Well, I've been, I've been, well, this is, this is a shared passion with my son, but my <laughs> wife has, has slightly hamstrung me to tell me that I can only buy Nike Dunks and Nike Air Jordans. The That's Dunks it. are great. Like, dunks they're are great. classic, yeah. you know, you can't. But they're impossible to buy at retail. Like, it kills me. Yes. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, Nike Skateboard Dunks. There you go. Interesting. No, I have, I have a few Dunks in the wardrobe. I, I can, um, I'm feeling you on that one. Steve, I, I look forward to seeing what colorway you, um, you're going to pass out <laughs> next, time we, next time we catch up. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, have a great rest of the week. Cheers, Thanks, man. Thanks. Bye. That was Kai Schindelmeyer and Steve Irwin of Colonel Property, and I am Alistair Fitzgerald, the CEO of Field. We don't talk much about us on this podcast, but if you do want to learn more, we are the leading solution in the Australian market for lease portfolio due diligence. If you're buying or selling commercial real estate assets, or a tenant looking to better understand and leverage its lease portfolio, or you're involved in transaction advisory involving large quantities of commercial real estate leases, let us turn your leases into action. Find out more at fieldql.com. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode.